So good afternoon. Uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke. I'm the TJI director, and it's my pleasure today to welcome our uh, guest speaker. Uh, a guest speaker, though, still, I think, one of us, I, I hope, Philip. Uh, Philip's uh, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen, um, but he um, conducted his PhD research uh, with us at the TJI, and we are indeed delighted to welcome him back um, to present on what is now a monograph, which is very exciting to see it um, as a published book uh, with the University of California Press. Um, Philip's work was, was pathbreaking in several respects. It was something we were very excited about at the Institute and it's really um, lovely to see it enter the world in this way. Um, and I know to much, uh, to high expectations and to much, much interest. Um, so Philip, um, I won't, I won't uh, delay too long on an introduction just to say we are delighted to have you. Thank you for starting uh, your, your book tour journey with us here to remembering us uh, as your, your initial home. And uh, indeed, I hope we continue to be to be a second home for you. Um, so Philip is going to speak for about sort of 40 minutes. Um, we'll then have some uh, reflections and contributions from uh, TGI colleague, uh, Professor Brandon Hamber. Um, and then we'll open the session out to Q&A. Uh, there is a chat function uh, that's ongoing uh, through the session. So you can have an opportunity to post questions as you wish there, and I'll, I'll moderate those. And, uh, and also just to make you aware that we are recording the session. Um, with the intention of broadcasting it later. So uh, just to be aware of that in terms of your, your contributions as well. Okay, so thank you, Philip, I will hand over to you. Great, thank you so much for that kind introduction, Catherine, and for the invitation to come back um, with this book to TJI, um, for the opportunity to speak about it here with all of you. And then thanks so much for everyone or to everyone for joining. It's nice to see so many and so many familiar and friendly faces here. Um, and I look forward to discussing the book later on with you, so you're very welcome for that. Um, yeah, Catherine, as you say, it's a particular pleasure to be able to bring this book back to TGI, where it really originated and where really most of the curiosities, I think, that guided, it, guided its journey came into shape and came into being. Um, as Catherine said, the research underpinning this book was primarily conducted for my PhD research at TGI. And the book is based off my dissertation. So it is really like bringing this book back to my second home. And I'm glad you think about that um, this way as well, Catherine. Now, as books usually are, this book too, I think, is in many ways a collaborative effort that would not have been possible without the involvement of different groups of people, which include, sorry, um, of course, most importantly, the male survivors who participated in this study and who engaged with me in the research discussion, the Men of Courage Survivor Group in Northern Uganda, which I'll circle back to later on. Um, but of course, also colleagues at the Refugee Law Project in Uganda, with whom I was privileged enough to collaborate for this work and who facilitated the research, who guided it, and who really created the environment in Uganda that made it possible to conduct this type of work in the first place. And then there's, of course, also the group here at TGI, including my supervisors, Brandon, Finula, and also Louise Malinda, all of whom greatly shaped and influenced the project and my thinking and guided me throughout. And you know, given this background, given this familiarity, I'm particularly glad to have that chance to be in conversation with Brandon and with you, Catherine, who you, you were also involved in this, not only as an inspiration to shape my work, but also as a more hands-on, as an internal examiner at this thesis defense. And then to have that conversation and extend that with all of you. Um, and again, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and your questions later on. Um, a, a quick note on the picture. I do, I mean, you know, I do in particular like the one on the bottom left here, I think, because it really exposes the hideous fashion choices of white men, um, all wearing cargo shorts on that one. Um, but it's, you know, this 
collage of pictures just serve to sort of illustrate a couple of illustrations of how the book sort of you know came about and was that collaborative effort. Now the book, the way that I see it, I think is quite empirically heavy, which is hopefully or perhaps part of the contribution that it can make to the literature by trying to offer the empirically grounded perspectives of those who are directly affected by sexual violence against men and then integrating these perspectives into a still emerging and otherwise I think quite theoretically driven body of literature. And in short, the book's objective um, could be characterized as aiming to illuminate the otherwise seldom heard and often also marginalized voices, experiences, and perspectives of male survivors of sexual violence, specifically in the context of northern Uganda. Now, the approach that I'm trying to adopt in you know, trying to make these experiences visible and trying to understand them is quite aptly reflected in an Acholi proverb, which are rooted in a very strong oral tradition in Acholi land in northern Uganda. And things fall apart, Chinua Achebe writes that proverbs are the palm oil with which words are swallowed, which I think is not only wonderfully poetic and sounds really, really wonderful, but also applies to the oral tradition in northern Uganda's region of the Choli land. And there's one particular proverb that I let myself be guided by in this book. And I learned about this through Okot Pipitek's collection of Acholi proverbs and also through Holly Porter's work. And the proverb reads as follows, and I'm hoping I'm not butchering the translation too much here or the pronunciation here too much here. But the proverb reads, which can be translated as a long stick cannot kill a snake. Now, every one of you who ever had to try and kill a snake with a stick probably knows that there's some truth to it, right? Because if you have a long stick and you try to sort of hit that snake with a long stick, what you end up doing is only delivering sort of weak blows because the stick is too long and by the time the stick would hit the snake, all of the power of that sort of stroke of that blow would be gone again. And also when using a long stick, there's sort of the danger that by the time you hit the snake, the, cur the snake would curl around the end of the stick and then latches on. And when you raise the stick again to give it another blow, the snake would fall, you know, release and fall on your head and then obviously you are in trouble. So instead of using that long stick, what you want to do is use a shorter stick to get near and close to the snake, but then be able to deliver a more decisive blow in order to be able to kill it. And according to um, Okot Pibitek and Holly Porter, the morale of that proverb would be that if you're too far away from a problem, you cannot contribute to that solution. So what you need to do instead is you need to get close to the problem in order to be able to deal with it and resolve it using that metaphorical um, short stick. And in some ways, this is what I want to do in this book. I want to get close to the diverse experiences and the viewpoints of male survivors of sexual violence to try and understand how they can be dealt with. And by doing so, I hope to recognize and then also make visible the diversity and complexity of survivors' experiences beyond one universalizing storyline, and thereby to paint a more holistic picture of sexual violence against men that puts survivors' experiences under the microscope and then also at the forefront of that discussion. Now, in this vein, the way, or at least the way that I see it, although here I don't want to anticipate or project how the book will be read by you, the book would operate on three registers or with three particular focus areas. The first one will concern the documentation and then contextualization of the prevalence of sexual violence against men, both across time and space and specifically in northern Uganda. 
To that end, there's a chapter that offers a global perspective about sexual violence against men, documenting its occurrence in a variety of different conflicts. And there's a chapter detailing the dynamics surrounding sexual violence against men, specifically in northern Uganda, placing these crimes into a wider political and historical context. Um, it's my intention that both of these exercises serve to counter the misconception that's still out there, I think, in the literature and in policymaking circles, that sexual violence against men is something that rarely ever happens, that is an anecdote at most, or an exception to the norm. And this global overview indeed shows that even though, of course, women and girls remain disproportionately affected by different forms of gender-based violence across time and space, sexual violence against men and boys does occur more frequently than is popularly assumed and therefore requires the attention, recognition, and care that the book advocates for. Can you guys hear the cat in the background, the cat noises? No, okay, sorry about that. Mm. We just talked about the cat exercise and the cat, or the cat accident and the cat filter. Now there's an actual cat disturbing me here. Um, now, the second focus area of that book concerns the gendered impact of these crimes. And for this, I examine the different ways in which sexual violence carries numerous physical, psychological, but also physiological consequences, and then how these crimes impact upon male survivors' masculine identities in a variety of different ways, thereby striking at multiple levels of what it means to be a man in a truly society. In the literature, it seems to be agreed upon that sexual violence emasculates by way of feminization or homosexualization. And in this book, I not only problematize these concepts and this language, but also try to tease out empirically how these processes unfold and how survivors are being displaced from their gender personhood, as I seek to call it. Now, proposing this alternative terminology and concept of displacement from gender personhood instead of that language of emasculation would be, I hope, one of the central premises on which this book operates that can hopefully offer a lens that would capture these experiences and the fluidity of these processes rather than freezing dynamic experiences into time and space as it is often done in the literature. The third focus area deals with questions of justice, social repair, and agency. Now, given the presumed audience here and TJI's particular focus on questions of transitional justice, this is perhaps the area that I want to focus on most during this presentation, the question of how survivors engage with their experiences, how they exercise different forms of agency in coming to terms with their harms, and how their quests for justice unfold and what their priorities in these domains are. Feminist scholarship in transitional justice by scholars such as Finola, um, Catherine, and many others has made tremendously important inroads into gendering post-conflict justice processes, and amongst others also examines what justice and redress in response to gender-based violence specifically against women and girls may look like. Up until now, however, it remained underexplored how male survivors themselves conceptualize justice and what their post-conflict priorities in this um, area are. Now, in this talk, I'll try to home in on this, but of course, not without also paying attention to some of the other aspects I just mentioned now, given that thinking about justice and redress, of course, must always be context-specific and requires a prior understanding of how the crimes to be remedied are perceived in their gendered um, social and political damage. I want to begin by situating these crimes. Sorry, um, these crimes and their dynamics in a broader global and political context. Now, broadly speaking, um, since about the turn of the century, there now is ample awareness of the widespread dimensions of conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence. 
Although this type of violence um, in conflict setting is prevalent across time and space, I think it's fair to say that developments in the late 1990s and early 2000s brought this issue onto a broader agenda. These developments could include or would include the documentation of widespread perpetration of sexual violence during the civil wars in the former Yugoslavia and during the Rwandan genocide in the mid-1990s, as well as, of course, the United Nations Women, Peace and Security Agenda, kick-started through Resolution 1325, um, in which sexual and gender-based violence occupies a primary concern. Now, for long, these discussions evolved primarily around women and girls as victims of gender-based violence, obscuring both the agency of women in conflict settings, but also masculine vulnerabilities and men as victims. In recent years, however, this has begun to change and there's now growing feminist engagement with the different ways in which women are not just passively subjected to violence, but instead also exercise different forms of agency. And there's also growing recognition of masculine vulnerabilities in the ways in which men and boys are impacted by conflict, violence, and insecurities in distinctly gendered ways, including with regards to sexual violence. Since about 2013, there has also been slow but then steady recognition in the policy arena in recognizing sexual violence against men. Um, for instance, in the last WPS resolution from 2019, men and boys and, as victims are mentioned several times, um, indicating a shift of recognition here. There also is, although this is happening at a significantly slower pace, a move beyond that binary um, and to also pay attention to different forms of violence, including sexual violence against persons with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities and expressions and um, work by Jamie Hagen at Queens, Henry Mertonen, Fidelma Ash um, at Alster or Jose Serrano Amia, to name just a few scholars here, is really pushing that work to the um, forefront. Now, much of the existing literature on sexual violence against men specifically is concerned with documenting the silence surrounding these crimes and the reasons for why this type of violence remains underexplored and marginalized. Existing scholarship also conceptually examined the underlying reasons, the motivations and causes for this violence to occur, primarily portraying these crimes as forms of emasculation to terrorize, intimidate, and punish enemy populations. Yet for most of these discussions, and with only very few exceptions, survivors' experiences themselves remain mostly absent from these discussions and these debates. Mm. Many of these broader patterns also specifically apply to the context of northern Uganda. Here, crimes of sexual violence against men were widespread, yet accounts of these crimes are largely silenced and neglected locally, and also remain widely absent from scholarly analysis of the war. Despite exceptional and really groundbreaking documentation work by the Refugee Law Project, survivors' experiences and their viewpoints thus far also remained particularly underexplored in this particular context. Now, in terms of a little bit of context, um, in northern Uganda, crimes of sexual violence against men were perpetrated during the two-decade-long civil war between the LRA, LRA rebel group and the government of Uganda. The crimes were perpetrated primarily by government soldiers of the National Resistance Army under the command of um, the sitting head of state, President Museveni, mostly in the early stages of that civil war in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Locally, crimes of sexual violence against men, um, and in particular the crime of anal rape, which is one of the more common forms, are referred to as crimes of tech gun which translated back into English could be translated, can be translated as the way which is hard to bend or to bend over hard and forcefully. 
And as far as I'm aware, um, this vocabulary was specifically developed to refer to crimes or sexual violence perpetrated within this context. I think saying something about the prevalence here that would lead to the invention of a new vocabulary, I think, to describe these crimes. Um, I don't know what just happened now. Um, yeah, okay, sorry. Now, as we can see from this map here, which I've um, put together with my research collaborators in Uganda, um, these crimes were geographically widespread. And um, in this map, I've tried to map and document the, all the different localities across northern Uganda in which we were able to identify and document instances of sexual violence against men. Um, um, showing, you know, showing you that it has been pretty widespread um, all over the conflict-affected um, territory here. Now, of course, this doesn't say anything about the sort of quantitative prevalence, um, but gives you an indication, I think, that, again, it's not just an exception to the norm that happened once or twice, but rather something that was perpetrated more strategically and systematically as part of wider systematic warfare operation um, against the civilian Acholi population through the state army in this context. Um, when trying to sort of reason or, or understand the motivations and reasoning behind these crimes, um, it becomes obvious pretty quick that sexual violence against men specifically aimed to punish part of the civilian population for alleged rebellion and for alleged rebel collaboration and or to potentially deter them from doing so. Um, these crimes were also aimed um, as forms of retaliation against the civilian Acholi population for previous violence committed by Acholi soldiers in other parts of Uganda during a previous civil war, um, and they're therefore linked to previous episodes of violence um, and counter-violence and rooted in the colonial and post-colonial um, political history um, in Uganda. If you're interested in sort of some of the dynamics, I think we can maybe come back to that in the Q&A. Now, if we home in on that map a little bit more, um, what we can also see is that um, the perpetration of these crimes and the villages in which they were documented is pretty much concentrated along some of the military more important and strategically important routes here. So we have, for instance, these two routes here leading northwards towards um, South Sudan, where many of those who were specifically targeted as former rebels or former government um, or former soldiers or who were accused to be supporting the rebels um, went into hiding as well as that route leading sort of southwest towards Anaka, which um, at that point in history was, and I think continues to be a very strong opposition stronghold and where many of those who were specifically targeted through government violence were into hiding or were, were living at that time. Um, now, generally, trying to understand sexual violence against men, not only in Uganda, but also elsewhere, must be tied to constructions of masculinities, which especially in heteropatriarchal contexts, are constructed as incompatible with vulnerabilities. And these masculine expectations render men vulnerable in the first place and thereby become part of the reason for why they are targeted. Sexual violence then as a specific form of violence is particularly powerful because it subordinates along gender hierarchies while clearly communicating power and dominance as the wealth of feminist IR scholarship continues to document and unpack. Now, how do some of these processes unfold? Let's have a closer look at survivors' gendered harms and the ways in which these crimes impact their masculinities for us to better try and understand these dynamics. In general, and as I've previously mentioned, sexual violence here is theorized to compromise male survivors' masculinities. This emasculation is seen both to be the cause and the motivation for such violence to occur, as well as one of the primary consequences for male survivors. This experience of feeling less of a man or of being impacted on one's gender identity as a man 
is of course highly contextual and dependent on local gender constructions in the first place. Now in Uganda's heteropatriarchal um, societal context, men would be at the top of the gender hierarchy and the form of hegemonic normative masculinity exists, according to which men are expected to be physically strong, to be financially independent, to be sexually active and to protect the household, uh, as well as to provide for the family. Um, against this backdrop, the impact of sexual violence um, on survivors' masculinities unfolds in a variety of different ways. On the one hand, this is linked to acts of penetration, which again in the heteronormative context are typically coded as masculine, while being passively penetrated would be coded as feminine. Acts of penetration thereby subordinate male survivors in that gendered manifestation, and there's an exchange, I think, of masculinity and power that is taking place there, whereby the victim is seen to be deprived of his masculinity, whilst the perpetrator is somehow seen as being awarded a sense of hypermasculinity. Now, the second element of this gendered impact is linked to the numerous physical, psychological, and physiological consequences as a result of these crimes. These consequences then in turn have multiple ripple effects, which then um, constitute um, layered gendered harms. Now, for one, this is linked to um, the physical injuries, such as different kinds of um, waist pain, back pain, which often render male survivors unable to work and thereby to provide for their families, and therefore failing them in their masculine duty as the provider. The second element of that is that sexual violence or the sexual violations are often seen as demonstrating survivors' perceived inabilities to protect themselves and then by association also to protect their families, thereby again failing them in their masculine role as protectors. In addition, the physiological consequences often involve that survivors have been unable to achieve or to sustain an erection and have no or very limited interest in or desire for sex. Now, this in turn implies that they were often unable to father any more children and have a family, which is, um, again, an important cornerstone of that model of hegemonic masculinity that they are socialized into and that they are sort of taught to aspire to. Taken together, Crimes of sexual violence therefore strike at um, multiple levels of what it means to be a man in the hegemonic sense of masculinity in that surely context here. Um, I think what this also shows quite powerfully is that the impact of sexual violence is a continuous, dynamic, and unfolding process rather than a fixed or sort of singular event as it is often portrayed um, in existing literature. Mm. Now, in the contemporary post-conflict context in northern Uganda, um, remember the war is over since about 2008 and these crimes were perpetrated at times over 30 years ago. Survivors now seek to redress and um, engage with their experiences and their gendered harms in a variety of different kinds of ways. And this is, um, as I said before, I'd like to lay the focus of the reminder of this talk, although I realize I have been rambling on for quite some time now. Now, in the book, there's two ways in which I'm sort of looking at that aspect. Firstly, there's the ways in which survivors engage with their experiences on their own terms by way of exercising agency in the context of survivors' groups and thereby attaining a sense of justice on the more micro level. And then secondly, the wider external justice needs and priorities that survivors are advocating for. Here, I want to focus on the first aspect, on questions of agency and justice in that, in that micro level dimension given that I think it enables us to rethink some common assumptions that we continue to uphold about post-conflict justice processes in such settings. Now, an existing scholarship on this topic, questions of accountability, justice, and redress have been only insufficiently addressed, and male survivors' gender 
um, specific justice-related needs and priorities remain often looked. This lack of understanding is thereby mirrored by an actual vacuum of justice for male survivors in most conflict um, settings globally, and also certainly here in northern Uganda, where a diverse transitional justice landscape does exist, but none of the standard um, existing mechanisms have taken these crimes into account so far. At the same time, and um, linked to this, there has been almost no attention to the different ways in which male survivors also exercise different forms of agency, with only very few um, recent exceptions. Instead, in the existing literature on this topic, male survivors of sexual violence are mostly portrayed as ever-vulnerable, helpless victims without any voice, resulting in a very victimizing and disempowering narrative of silenced, isolated, and wholly marginalized male survivors, as Edstrom and Dolan have put it. Um, since agency is seen as this masculine trait, I think the prevailing assumption often seems to be that through the perceived um, taking away of survivors' masculinity, they have by association also been deprived of any masculine agency. And so hence the stereotypical picture of the ever vulnerable subject, I think, manifests itself here. Now, this is nothing particularly unique, I think, to male survivors. Um, we all know thanks to a wealth of feminist scholarship, that these presentations also apply to um, female survivors or all um, survivors of sexual violence in conflict settings. Um, survivors' realities in northern Uganda, though, do show us, again, that survivors exercise different forms of agency to come to terms with their experiences. Now, on this note, it is perhaps important to also recognize that um, acknowledging and recognizing this agency is not necessarily to downplay survivors' persisting vulnerabilities, and instead that survivors' experiences, um, not in this context and not in any other context, should ever be analyzed through this dichotomy of either victims or agents, but that both of these states coexist um, alongside each other. Now, the forms of justice-making and agency that I explore in this book mostly pertain the context of survivor support group. And indeed, most of the survivors who participated in my study are members of survivor support groups, um, which the Refugee Law Project has worked with for the past 10 years or so. One of these groups, specifically composed of male sexual violence survivors in northern Uganda, is called the Men of Courage. Now, within these groups, survivors are getting together on a regular basis. They hold weekly or monthly meetings and engage in different kinds of activities, such as peer-to-peer group-based counseling, income-generating activities, or joint saving schemes under the umbrella of so-called village savings and loan associations, which are really common across sub-Saharan Africa. Through these activities, I think the groups can be seen as creating safe spaces for healing and recovery in which survivors are enabled to collectively and individually engage with their experiences. Now, I specifically um, identify four different components of agency pathways, which in turn then link back to justice making, which I'll briefly sort of try to go through um, to sort of you know illustrate that and then also come towards the end of this. Um, now, on the one hand, um, the activities within the groups enabled survivors to renegotiate their previously impacted gender identities. As one survivor explained to me, before we came together, we had a lot of feelings of being less of a man. But since being in that group, these feelings have reduced. For instance, the group's income-generating activities in many ways economically empower the survivors and to some extent they also re-enable them to provide again for their families, something um, which they've been previously unable to. Um, of course, I think oh, it's important here to know that caution is required here that 
reestablishing that sense of manhood does not equate uh, reparation of the previous heteropatriarchal um, gendered status quo, which was based upon and also cemented very unequal um, gender relations and gender inequalities. And indeed, it seems that at least for some members in the groups, um, they are able to renegotiate new and at times also more egalitarian forms of masculinity by way of recognizing the detrimental impact that patriarchy and these constructions of masculinities had on them in the context of their violations in the first place. Um, I think this also shows that the prior impact of sexual violence on masculinities is not this static or constant thing, but rather something that can be addressed and is potentially malleable over time through different um, interventions. Now, um, the second aspect of that is that the groups enable survivors to create and recreate social relationships. By getting together in the group, survivors are often able to share new social relationships with people who share a lived reality um, and to have sort of that you know, common experience. Um, one survivor, for instance, explained to me by, that by bringing us together like this in a group helps us to better understand that we're not alone, but that others are also affected. And by providing these safe spaces and these communities, groups, I think, can be seen as helping to mitigate that isolation and challenge the reasons for marginalization and ostracism experienced by male survivors. Um, the third aspect of these agency pathways pertains elements of storytelling, which have a really strong tradition in the region of Acholi land. In practice, in the groups, survivors are often getting together and narrate parts of their stories or part of parts of their testimonies and experiences and the ways in which how these crimes affected them. For one survivor, for instance, the group offers a place where I can talk freely about what happened to me and others listen to me and acknowledge my story. Another survivor similarly explained that when we meet and we sit together, we can talk freely about what happened to us because everyone understands and had the same experience. Now, anthropologists in particular have previously documented the therapeutic and agentic power of storytelling in such settings which, um, to quote Michael Jackson, helped to overcome separateness, to find common ground and common cause. Specifically focused on Northern Uganda, Erin Baines and Beth Stewart in particular have documented also how storytelling links to elements of recovery and agency. As they write, stories told amongst survivors provide a space in which survivors might renegotiate their social marginalization. And indeed, in the wake of violence, storytelling can restore humanity through the reconstruction of one's life story and imply the potential to reconstitute communities and remake a world, as Wiener Das and Arthur Kleinman would put it. Um, I think it's important again to note here that within the group, these acts of storytelling are purely done for and amongst survivors themselves and not for a particular outside audience, um, thereby creating these safe environments, which I think are conducive um, for this collective engaging with their experiences and the trust that circulates there. Um, now, whilst these storytelling sessions um, enabled survivors to get that sense of peer recognition, the groups also imply the potential to elevate that struggle for recognition to a wider level. Um, we do recall that not only in Uganda, but also elsewhere globally, survivors' experiences are heavily silenced and marginalized. And in this context, many, although certainly not all survivors, often want a sense of recognition, at least officially or abstractly, of sexual violence against men in general, if not even more directly and personally of their own stories. Um, several survivors indeed proclaimed or emphasized that we need our violations to be recognized. And for many, this becomes even more pertinent as they're getting older in age. 
Now, one way in which that is done through the groups is, for instance, that um, some members of the groups have publicly um, spoken about their experiences at different kinds of events or forums, um, such as we can see here on the bottom picture here, um, Julius Oquera, who spoke at the South South Institute in Cambodia in 2015. Um, other survivors who participated in the study also had parts of their experiences documented in video documentaries by the Refugee Law Project, which then are sometimes screened locally across communities in northern Uganda, and therefore also um, deliver that sense of recognition on a more communal level. Now, for pretty much all of the survivors that I spoke with, these agentive capacities of the group immediately linked to questions of justice. Um, being in a group is a sense of justice, several survivors explained. Or To me, justice means to be in this group. And indeed, all of these elements of social repair, of recognition, and of restoration of relationships are crucial elements of justice if we conceive of it in a broadened and widened sense beyond criminal accountability. And there's, of course, a growing body of TJ scholarship that recognizes these local and micro-level dimensions of justice recognizing that justice is not something that happens to or for post-conflict communities, but that individuals often employ their own agency in facilitating these processes, as Laura Martin has put it. Now, recognizing the agentive capacities of survivors groups as a form of this micro-level justice-making, therefore, I think enables us to think more creatively and imaginatively outside that prevailing transitional justice toolbox. Um, Patricia Lundy at Alster and Mark McGovern emphasized that the first step to developing such strategies is to create spaces for people to determine, shape, and then develop solutions for themselves. And I think this is something that the groups certainly do. Now, in many ways, this understanding of justice in a wider sense and as a survivor-driven process not only embodies a survivor-centric approach as it is advocated or called for in the latest WPS agenda, um, but also aligns with local conceptions of justice in northern Uganda. And this is really the last point that I want to make before I open this up. Now, if we were to translate that word um, justice into a choli, we would typically arrive at a variety of different translations. One of the most common ones would be the translation of nol matia. Now, literally, this could mean to cut fairly or justly, but also to decide a question in a just manner. Um, Holly Porter, in her amazing research, carefully unpacks how in this specific context of a Choli land, Noel Matir can also be more precisely or more widely be understood as, um, quote, the right way forward in the aftermath of wrongdoing. And I think this local understanding of justice as that right way forward in many ways embodies this broader procedural and participatory dimension in which people themselves get involved in determining and finding out what this right way forward might look like, which of course must always be tailored to the specific harms to be remedied and to the individuals involved. Now, in many ways, I think abstract criminal justice, which often still is seen as the benchmark of TJ processes, and as we have seen it in the case against Dominic Ongweng at the ICC, in the case of Northern Uganda just last week, would not always necessarily be that right way forward if we take some of these aspects discussed here into account. Mm. Now, of course, in addition to um, these micro-level justice-making processes, different survivors inside the groups, as well as um, those who are not part of the group, have also additional or different um, justice-related needs and priorities. Now, these include primarily official acknowledgement, as well as reparations to be able to, um, quote, live a, like, live a life like any other community member, as one survivor has put it. 
Um, I think, though, that I'm going to end it here now because I think I have gone a little bit over time now and to leave enough room for us to um, collectively engage about this, to hear Brandon's comments and then also to hear your thoughts um, and questions. And I invite all of you again to, you know, share your thoughts, articulate your questions, and I really looking, look forward to enter into conversation with you. Um, thanks so much for your attention so far. Terrific. Thank you, Philip. Uh, the wonderful uh, overview of the of the book, and um, you did remarkable justice to it, actually, given the given the limitations of what one can do in forty minutes. So, so thank you. Um, I'm going to first uh, first I just invite everybody to feel free to enter in your question into the chat function. Uh, the chat, if you look at the bottom right of the your screen, you'll see the you'll be able to access the chat box. And um, while you're formulating your questions, I'm going to invite my colleague uh, Brandon Hamber to. Um, offer some reflections and response to the presentation. Okay, well, um, thank you very much. You can hear me all right? Great, great. Well, um, I'm not going to say too much because I think uh, I'm sure others would like to interact uh, with you, Philip, and to, to ask specifically about the book. Um, but first and foremost, I wanted to obviously congratulate you on a superb piece of work uh, and this is a book launch so I'm not quite sure I've never done a book launch online before actually um, so I do feel some obligation to have to say this book is hereby officially launched through the Transitional Justice Institute and I have a copy here so I'll just sort of like hold it up um, uh, but to really congratulate you on, on a superb uh, a superb piece of work um, and also as you noted on your slide uh, and just to reiterate to everybody, it is available open access, which is uh, fabulous. And so it's an incredible resource uh, and it's an important resource because obviously you're exploring a subject that is not deeply understood, that is not talked about very much. Um, and in that way is breaking so many silences and, and feels fitting that it's actually open access um, given, uh, given the topic. Um, before making my comments, I also just wanted to thank uh, a few people because this uh, as you said this this book is a a result of of work with a whole range of people and of course important colleagues at transitional justice institute uh fellow supervisors for nulinia line louise malander uh, catherine for her participation in the viva and keeping us going and as the internal examiner um, also, Erin Baines, who was the external examiner, who uh, you know really I think has helped shape our thinking in so many different ways, and also to specifically mention uh, Dr. Chris Dolan from the Refugee Law Project, who uh, by allowing access and connection and working with us in a really painstaking way, and with his team, many of whom you know you named some, uh, really uh, made this happen. I just really wanted to acknowledge that and, and the incredible work of the Refugee Law Project uh, that none of us would really be there without them and certainly from my interactions with this I've learned so much over the last uh, number of years and just really wanted to, to make a heartfelt thank you to that and, and then of course the, the survivors who are such an important part of your, your work. Um, so sorry for the sort of lengthy thank yous but I do think they really are, uh, they really are important. Um, and uh, in terms of the book, there are many things that I think I could say, and, and we've discussed so many of them over the years. I mean, importantly, I think this book really does reshape some of the conceptual thinking around uh, male victims of sexual violence. Um, I thought maybe by way of opening the discussion, however, instead of reiterating a whole range of points, uh, I might just sort of pose four 
areas that I think might be worth exploring. Um, and, and the first of those, which you deal with extensively in the book and obviously now didn't have time, and perhaps you're alluding to the very poor dress sense uh, of yourself and myself and our cargo shorts uh, in the photograph. We're making a, a vague, uh, allu uh, alluding to it vaguely, but the, the issue of ethics and positionality and being an outsider in, in this context, which you deal with very sensitively in the book, um, I think is something worth exploring. And maybe we could have a few questions or comments around some of those, of, of those issues. Um, you know, we're talking about an incredibly sensitive topic and then somebody coming from the outside, as much as you explore in the book, how you tried to work with that and your awareness of that positionality and your careful ethical treatment of that. There's a lot that I think could be said said about that. So I wanted to really throw maybe that out as our first area to think about. Um, the, the second is your conceptual use and, and uh, addition to the field of the idea of the displacement of gendered personhood and, and really a challenge to the sort of emasculation literature, uh, talking about how perceptions of masculinist identities can really change over time, that they're contextual contingencies, and that it is possible to really remake uh, I suppose a remaking of the self, I think, is a word you use in the book uh, within different types of gendered subjectivities. And, and I think that that's an incredible contribution to the field and makes us you know, focus on that sort of micro in the way that you had had mentioned it. I guess the question for me about that, other than the, the addition to the field of, of the concept, um, is what does that mean um, in terms of, for me as a psychologist, in terms of the process of healing? Because in some ways, that remaking of your sort of gendered self is probably a key part of that healing process. Um, and with masculinities, the challenge we have is that perhaps in some contexts, you talk about sometimes the violations lead to more egalitarian relationships, but sometimes the remaking of your gendered self would mean the reconstituting of pre-existing gendered relationships, that that would be the most, uh, you know, from a psychological perspective, that would make the most sense in terms of finding healing. But then we have problems if those are structured in certain hierarchical ways that are reinforcing certain types of negative hegemonic masculinities. And so, you know, I, I, I really like your concept of displacement of gendered personhood, and it takes us to a much more subtle place, and it, it's, it's more hopeful, and it opens the door. Uh, but then how does that work within sort of such dominant hierarchical masculinities? Um, the third comment, uh, you've talked about it in, in, in the presentation, really, was around the issue of justice. Um, and, you know, you say it in the book, and, and, and uh, I don't know if you use those words today, but the, the idea of the sort of the group that people participate in is their sense of justice. It is the thing that gives them acknowledgement and gives them recognition. Um, and that structures like the ICC and, and, and UN resolutions uh, to build on what you said in terms of the uh, uh, proverb you used, I mean, they really are long sticks. You know, by the time they hit the ground, so much stuff has happened. You know, so if there's ever a ever an idea of what is a long stick, I think some of those resolutions and others are a really good way of, of thinking about that. Um, but I know we've talked about this, but I think discussing uh, the limitations of how people conceptualize justice within a context where they're not used to justice. Uh, for me is an interesting thing to consider. So your group is the sense of justice. Is that because 
It offers that agency that you talk about. It offers that support and that recognition. Or is it because actually in a context like Uganda, you really have no chance of actually getting your case to court, that you never have a chance of really seeing some retributive justice against the perpetrator? So how does that those two sit with each other. Um, and then the fourth and the, the final point is you make a really strong case for the sort of survivor-centric uh, uh, focus. Um, and, you know, and, and a key part of this book, as you said, your first uh, objective was really um, making known what has happened in this case and, and us really making the case uh, for the importance of focusing on male victims of of sexual uh, of sexual violence and and the important resolutions um but again there i often see a paradox which is that as much as we need to now add this to the international uh, discussions about uh, gender violence. Um, the problem is, is that we still end up going down a very violation-centric idea. And so then we end up, you know, conflating masculinities uh, and discussions of masculinities with either men as perpetrators or men as victims. Um, and uh, I would just sort of maybe interested in some of your thoughts about how do we essentially expand and develop as you've done in your work uh, the importance of male sexual violence but also then not fall into what i see even within the wider gender debates about um, sexual violence that it becomes a very violation centric process rather than recognizing the wider structural nature of violations that either happen to women uh, and in this case happened to men, uh, you know, because of their poverty, because of their marginalization, because of the exclusion in society. And so we end up focusing on the violation rather than the wider picture of a whole set of violations. Um, so maybe that was a bit longer than I had hoped, but uh, there was sort of four areas for me that I think would be really interesting to explore in the questions. I'm sure people have other questions, but, but thanks, Philip. And thank you also for just giving me the opportunity to say something. Um, for this really important piece of work. And uh, I feel like it's been a, a real opportunity for me to learn from you in this process uh, as uh, working as a supervisor and us seeing your, your, your book. Um, so thanks, Philip. Thank you, Brandon. Um, Philip, would you like to respond to some of that? And we've also got some external questions coming in, but just to make sure you have an opportunity to, to respond to Brandon. And yeah, don't feel you have to respond to all of it, Philip, as well. They were mostly just framing, you know, if yeah. you want to get on to the other. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can do justice to all of that and do engage with all of that, also because I think it would lead me down a path where I would ramble on for um, even more time than I have already, and therefore we were um, close down on time that people could have to ask questions and engage, which I'm really curious about as well. Um, I mean, yes, Brendan, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your really flattering and kind words. Um, not sure if you can really see how I was blushing over the screen. Maybe that's one of the advantages of Zoom, that that's not so visible as it would be in the actual room. But it's really nice. And yeah, I mean, I can only um, emphasize and underscore what you said about the process of doing this work together with you as part of the team at TGI, but also um, with the folks at the Refugee Law Project who really put, you know, who, who made the environment for this work to be done um, in the first place and who really um, yeah, created that process, which I think kind of links to the first point that you've raised, right? these questions of ethics and positionality. Um, 
Absolutely, it wouldn't have been possible to do that kind of work um, without the institutional sort of affiliation and the link that there was um, of working with an um, organization, which in itself brings about a number of opportunities and possibilities, but also, um, you know, a couple of, um, I think, challenges in terms of navigating that, um, navigating questions of expectations, what sort of in for whom, um, and so on and so forth. But and, and you're right, I mean, you know, the, I, I try to sort of engage with these questions of my own positionality of the ethics that come with that and the power inequities and imbalances that there still are. Um, and I try to be transparent about that, but also I think it's important to, to recognize that working on a topic like that in a context like that, it's never possible, I think, to sort of address them fully or to avoid these kind of dilemmas but rather I think the question is how to sort of you know take them on how to learn from them how to reflect openly about what that sort of enables us to look at but also what some of the um, limitations remain and the fact you know even though I have had that opportunity um, to access that process that Re Refugee Law Project has been putting into place um, the fact that I'm just a, an outsider very visible outsider to that um, context you know, can't undo some of the other dynamics that are going on here and some of the um, maybe similarities in terms of some of um, the stuff that I explore in the book. Um, now, maybe I'll try to sort of focus on that second um, part that you said about this idea of gendered personhood, because you're absolutely right. I mean, and I try to sort of get at that um, when discussing the ways in which these groups can contribute towards restoring that sense, you know, or rebuilding the cells a little bit there. Um, and so the idea with it, um, displacement from gender personhood would be uh, that it's based out of a discomfort with the language and the concepts that there are and instead sort of try to understand um, this process of the impact um, with the analogy of that you know physical displacement like they're displaced temporarily from their um, from their gender identities but with as with physical displacement there always is that chance to sort of you know return again and in the refugee um, studies or the um, the language use there, um, I think one of the terms there would often be repatriation, right? If you're repatriated. And I think the repatriation, I think there's something with repatriation and restoring um, patriarchy that I think makes this maybe even, you know, and I haven't explored that in the book, but this is based upon the conversation that I have with you and with some other colleagues. Um, that um, has a chance in the conceptual sense, but also really gets to the um, uncomfort uncomfortable dynamics going on there. Because obviously, you know, if you want that sort of sense of healing, if you want to, you want to be put back into that position of power and privilege that you have. And so the most obvious thing would be to, you know, lean into that longing for masculinity, nostalgia, as it has been sometimes described in the literature, or this yearning for the patriarchal golden age that there is. Um, and there's indeed, you know, there are some dynamics, I think, in the groups in which people try to sort of be aware of that and also see because of the ways in which that um, previous sense of masculinity has had really, you know, detrimental consequences for them, that that's maybe not something that works for them and that works societally. Um, yet at the same time, you know, there's a paradox um, there that also this is where power is for them and where, you know, they do often want to be sort of returned to. And so I think just openly engaging with that and acknowledging that again is one of the more important bits here. Not to over-romanticize that. I think I'm often rightfully criticized for over-romanticizing some of these dynamics. And this also applies, I think, to this context here. Um, so here's my attempt of trying to not do that um, while also you know, paying attention and just documenting what I think are some of the dynamics taking place there. Um, 
Maybe lastly, before we open this up, the question of, of justice and the groups that you say, and again, you're absolutely right. I think one of the ways for why many of the, well, all of the survivors I engaged with um, see these groups as, you know, embodying or enabling a sense of justice is because of that vacuum of justice in any other domain. So there is no other real avenue for that to happen. And maybe if there would be opportunities to receive reparation and to receive state acknowledgement, um, you know, maybe um, maybe this would feature less prominently. Maybe this wouldn't be as sort of strongly pronounced. Um, I was at a really um, fabulous Zoom panel yesterday about narrative justice, which I think links to some of these elements of storytelling here. And there was also a question raised about that. You know, if um, there can ever be narrative justice through storytelling in contexts where there is only injustice. And I think, you know, part of the conversation there also evolved around that, that this you know, general sense of injustice is what makes this um, these processes and these outcomes, um, you know, so powerful and so strongly, I mean, gives them sort of that more healing or recovering um, dimension. Um, maybe we can come back to the other two aspects, or well, the other aspects about the survivor-centric approach in the discussion and leave this um, open now. I think I see some questions popping in from the side here, although I have no yeah. idea how to actually so I, see I'm, them. I'm happy to moderate those, Philip, if that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So just I suppose uh, just one on around sort of methods and data collection. Uh, the, there's a couple on that theme. Um, firstly, was there, um, there was a, someone here interested in how you sort of accessed your identified and accessed um, your respondents, and did you find a resistance to talking about their experiences? And and then related to that, uh, could you speak a bit about the best practices that you developed um, through your work through engaging? Uh, survivors of sexual violence uh, in Uganda, and um, in particular about the sort of community-led engagement approach that you took. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for moderating that, Catherine, and thanks so much for these um, great questions. Now, I mean, I've tried to sort of allude to that now in that debate with Brandon a little bit, that mm -hmm. um, I've done the work in close collaboration with the Refugee Law Project, um, an organization that has been working with groups of male survivors for like over 10 years now. Um, and which then, you know, put me into that or en enabled me to become part of a um, continuous process of engaging with survivors um, who are part of these survivors groups. So um, we, in practical terms, you know, we I did a couple of group-based discussions, always in collaboration with um, my colleagues at the Refugee Law Project. I think one of them, Fred, um, was part of this call for quite some time now. Um, feel free to weigh in, Fred, if you have any sort of um, input on that later on. Um, and so, you know, doing that sort of um, that that part of situating that as part of that established process is really what I think enabled this, um, you know, this continuous process of building trust, of sort of connecting to a relationship that existed before, um, and having an environment in the process I think in which the survivors who took part in the research were able to trust the institution, and then some of that trust I think you know would be at least um, theoretically transferred towards the research process, um, which of course is not, you know, all that it takes. Um, you know, in addition to that, I think it was also um, the result and the um, consequence of, you know, a continuous and very long process of engaging with survivors prior to doing these um, discussions. Um, I've done work in Northern Uganda since 2011. I've engaged with some of the survivors um, since 2015 or 2014 even. Um, so way before I would actually sort of, you know, have these research discussions. Um, and as such, I mean, you know, within the groups, of course, not all members of the groups would be, or would be, um, 
would be asked to you know participate if they didn't want to. So this was obviously also based on you know informed consent and voluntary participation. Um, but I think given that there is this process where they do talk about that within the groups and with the Refugee Law Project, there was not necessarily that sort of resistance that you might have sort of expected um, if, you know, if that wouldn't be part of that process. Now, that was a long way of sort of answering your question there. I hope, um, hope you got <laughs> what I meant to say, though. Um, and yeah, was there a second part to that question or a second question already, Catherine? Uh, I think, no, I mean, I think you got the, the, the key, the, the, that was the, the key kind of questions. Um, another theme coming out of the questions uh, is around, um, did you find any, it's kind of same question framed in slightly different ways. Um, in your research, did you encounter any uh, attitudes or beliefs that were hostile to working on this topic on the basis that it somehow detracted from working on CRSV against women and girls, and and mm -hmm. then sort of related to that, um, do you see the opportunity through this kind of work to to open up, um, to open up uh, analysis of CRSV against on other genders and yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in northern Uganda, and I probably should have said that as part of the presentation, but there's only so much I, I think I could sort of speak to in that. Um, but so crimes of sexual violence against men are heavily marginal, silenced and um, stigmatized, and they're also often conflated with um, homosexuality. So, you know, when I would speak to people in northern Uganda about my work, um, for instance, I remember when I, when I got there and I was sort of looking for people to collaborate with, um, beyond the Refugee Law Project who could help me with translations and I would speak to you know different kinds of people who had experience with research assistance work. Um, you know some of them when I talked to um, them about what I wanted to do said oh so you're working on like um, homosexuality here you know so that was always immediate that sort of equation of sexual mm -hmm. violence against men with um, homosexuality which of course is also linked to you know some of their experiences and the consequences that it would have so um, for instance, one of the reasons for that huge um, justice gap there is that the Ugandan Penal Code um, defines rape in very gendered terms as, you know, a male perpetrator and a female victim. And then, um, as those of you who sort of, you know, know something about the region and politics there in the last sort of couple of years know that um, homosexuality is not only stigmatized, but it's also criminally outlawed, you know, so there's that real sort of... Um, yeah, discouragement to really report um, any of these crimes because um, service providers and survivors also have emphasized that, that when they would go and speak with service providers or medical staff sometimes you know they would get the same reaction and be accused of homosexuality and instead of being um, able to receive services would you know risk being sort of prosecuted on that end so um, you know there was that sort of yeah that stigmatization um, and that sort of you know broader societal sort of um, impossibility to sort of speak about that in that context. And I think, I mean, you know, I, in my research, I haven't sort of paid much attention to that, I must admit, but I think um, this broader sort of, you know, this equation and then the stigmatization and the criminalization um, would make it incredibly difficult, I think, to do research in Northern Uganda on sexual violence um, against, um, you know, people with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities. Now, the Refugee Law Project, again, in Uganda, not specifically in Northern Uganda, but um, in other parts of Uganda is also working with um, groups in which people, um, you know, who identify queer or who have diverse sexual orientations come together, uh, mostly from other parts of the Great Lakes region. Um, 
but yeah, you can really see there that um, some of the challenges I think get magnified there through the societal stigma and the um, you know the stuff that's going on the political level in that way. Yeah, but that's a great question though. And did did you want to say anything about um, resistance to the work on the basis that it was displacing attention or detracting from work on women and girls? Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I, I guess I ignore that because it's a thorny issue. Because um, well, I didn't <laughs> get any of that resistance in northern Uganda, but I do. I mean, like you know, it's it's happened that I think maybe at a conference, for instance, I was um, you know accused uh, as everyone I think doing work on that topic of um, by paying attention to that, diverting attention and resources from the work that is being done on sexual violence against um, women and girls. And I mean, you know, there's some truth to it. I think there are way too few resources. Um, and so I think, you know, there's no, we shouldn't do any sort of finger pointing and blaming here between um, ourselves, I think, but, you know, rather point towards the systems where um, on the international scale, you know, and also locally, I mean, you know, in the UK, women shelters are being closed all over the place. Um, you know, and and internationally, there's very few resources to do any of this type of work. So I think instead of you know doing that, um, you know, fight over resources, what's needed there would really be to align forces um, and try to sort of you know get processes and programs in place that not only pay attention to women and girls and men and boys, but also to those outside the gender binary. Which you know, if men have very few resources or male victims then there's, you know, almost no attention and no resources for their very um, specific um, needs and experiences. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've had a couple of questions here just about patterns of, of perpetrators and perpetration. So mm -hmm. um, did you did you collect data on perpetrator groups and did this impact how male survivors from quote unquote different sides of the conflict related to one another in terms of the pursuit of justice and engaging in solidarity initiatives? And um, a similar point, I'm wondering, did you find evidence of sexual violence against men in northern Uganda as a weapon of war? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of the perpetrators, um, and again, I've tried to sort of, you know, indicate that in the presentation, but went pretty quickly, I think, on that point. Um, but it's really sort of, you know, very squarely situated in a broader political and historical context there. Um, um, and whilst, I mean, you know, the, the conflict in northern Uganda is um, well attended to now, there's a wealth and a bunch of scholarship on that, much of which, or most of which, focuses on crimes committed by the Lord's Resistance Army. Um, I've also mentioned the verdict at the ICC next week um, against Dominic Ongwen, one of the commanders of the Lord's Resistance Army. Um, you know, and when looking at, at these patterns of violations, there are some of these, you know, really thorny questions of who's a victim, who's a perpetrator, and, you know, what side of the conflict was somebody on at what point in time. You know, they're incredibly complex, and as we've seen, they're beyond the scope, I think, of retributive criminal justice to deal with. Now, when it comes to these crimes, I mean, it's not easier in that way, because how could this ever be easy? But the responsibilities here and the sort of roles are pretty clearly, you know, pretty evenly sort of distributed. So these were crimes that were perpetrated by government soldiers during the early stages of the war against civilian men. Um, so the sort of, you know, the way that the rebel group comes in here is only that some of the men were targeted because they were accused of being rebels or being former rebels or supporting the rebels. Um, and so, I mean, I did some sort of documentation of some of the different battalions, like government battalions and troops that were involved in the perpetration. Um, I've purposefully excluded them from the book because, you know, it's a very thorny and controversial political issue in Uganda already. Um, 
and there's much to be careful of. Um, but yeah, so, and I think maybe that documentation of some of these um, battalions also links to that other question of, you know, the strategic impact, because we could really see, and again, I hope that the map would sort of, you know, show that that um, the perpetration was scattered along some of these military and um, very um, highly frequented routes in which some of these mobile battalions moved constantly up and down, um, you know, specifically targeting um, those in hiding either in South Sudan, where lots of the rebels or um, former rebels or accused rebels were, and in very strong um, opposition strongholds. Um, which again gives an indication for you know why these men, um, specifically these men, were targeted um, in these localities and, and how that maps to these wider strategic um, warfare patterns. So yes, I would definitely you know characterize the overall perpetration as systematic and you know in the literature then this would be sort of classified as this rape as a weapon of war. Um, although even though we do see these wider patterns, um, I think it is important to also emphasize here that it rarely ever is this binary. It's either opportunistic or it's strategic. But even if it's you know largely um, strategic on a wider scale, of course there's much room for more you know opportunistic forms of violence to emerge within that, and the boundaries are often much more fluid, I think, than they are made out to be. But yeah, I mean to sort of simplify that question. Um, I think it's safe to say that there is um, a sense, or it, it can be characterized as a weapon of war, a strategic weapon of war. Okay, thank you, Philip. Um, yeah. Question here from um, Roxana Crisali. Uh, there is, uh, thank you. many congratulations, I should say, Philip as well, many congratulations on a wonderful book uh, in, in these comments. But uh, a question here, there's deep care that runs through your work and writing. Could you talk a bit about how your work exposed you not only to experiences of violence and harm, but also to practices of care? Sorry, Catherine, I feel like my connection is being interrupted here. Um, ah, okay. Can you, guys, can you okay. hear me okay? Can I, yeah. I can hear you. Would you like me to say that again? Yeah. Could yeah. you say that again? So, I also, sure. yeah. If you could say that again, that would be wonderful. Sorry. Okay, no problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. There is deep care that runs through your work and writing. Could you talk a bit about how your work exposed you not only to experiences of violence and harm, but also to practices of care? That's a that's such a wonderful question because yeah. I mean I was as I was going through my notes um, um, there were a couple of sort of things that I just sort of skipped because I was conscious of time but one of the things I wanted to sort of add when talking about the processes within the the groups um, and you know how people get together there um, support one another share that sort of lived reality and you know are there for each other on a regular basis you know meet you know sometimes weekly maybe even more so. Um, help out one another when there's sort of need, when there are, you know, when there's extra vulnerabilities that arise, when there's, um, you know, situations of despair. I think one of the aspects, and I've analyzed this as, you know, these processes more abstractly, I think, as, as questions of justice or agency, but I think one thing that comes really, or that shines through really clearly here is also how these relationships within the groups are really clearly sort of founded in loving and caring relationships, right? Where people do share that lived reality and they relate to each other as, you know, um, relational hu human beings. Um, and I think this tells us a lot, I think, about the ways in which, or the roles that love and care can play in processes of social repair, of resilience, of remaking a life, or whatever you want to sort of call that, and also show us that again it's it's rarely ever sort of that black and white there's either violence and harm and suffering or there's love and care 
but that often, you know, these different sort of experiences or these different roads, um, you know, sit side by side and coexist alongside each other, um, you know, and paint a much more sort of complex role there. Um, now, I think that's sort of one of the ways in which I, I see um, elements of love and care, um, and care in particular, sort of, you know, in the findings or in the sort of stuff that I engage with. Um, and then, of course, also, I think care plays a really important role, um, you know, in that wider sort of process that has been put into place and the methodological process that's been going on or that is going on. Um, and that therefore also, I think, you know, at least sort of seeing that care um, and trying to sort of replicate that care and putting that at the forefront will then link back to some of the points that Brandon has said about, um, you know, ethics and positionality and the relationships that are going on there. Um, because again, I think this sort of relational way of doing that research wouldn't have been possible if there wouldn't be a sense of care. Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you, you guys can hear me okay, right? Because my screen seems to be completely frozen, like I can't scroll to the chat box and I can't see any of you, but you guys can hear me? Yeah, you look you look and sound fine, Philip. There's there's no problem. Okay, with sound. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm sorry you can't see the chat box. That is that is unfortunate. Um, yeah. Just, um, just another another uh, I think the short shorter question here. Um, in in how far did the survivors groups themselves, um, how far did the survivors groups themselves go through a process of defining and recognizing their experiences of sexual violence over the years of their existence, and how did they start? Yeah, that's a really terrific question. And I mean, I think it's absolutely an ongoing process, you know, of coming to terms with that, of sort of recognizing that. Um, I mean, again, I've said that before, the way that they sort of were started was um, through an initiative of the Refugee Law Project. Um, I think it started first with um, groups of refugee male survivors from the Great Lake region living in Kampala and in a refugee settlement in another part of Uganda. And then, um, you know, over time, this group in northern Uganda was formed. Um, I think the specific context of how this came about was at a um, this um, this you know global forum, the South South Institute on Sexual Violence Against Men, in which some individual survivors from northern Uganda participated um, and also expressed you know seeing the process and that there was in other um, parts of Uganda wanted to you know get together in a group um, and sort of formalize to be able to, you know, do some of the work um, that they've um, seen has been going on elsewhere. Um, and given the, you know, political context in northern Uganda, where it's government perpetrated crimes, um, of which, um, you know, the same government is still in control, um, you know, takes a lot of courage to speak about these experiences. That name of the men of courage, I think, came from it was sort of coined there. Um, and ever since then, you know, this started very slowly. I think the first um, group was maybe like three or four um, members, although I think Fred um, Nomokwe, who I see now is raising his hand, um, yeah. can say more about that too. Um, but, you know, and so over time, there was sort of that continuous process of, you know, sensitizing people, like some of the members in the group might have had some you know, speculations as to who um, within the community might also be affected because of some of the rumors they heard and would reach out to them and would therefore very slowly over time, you know, continue this sort of safe environment and create a, a process and a space in which sharing these, you know, these experiences and opening up and um, narrating these testimonies would become possible. But I mean, it's absolutely, you know, an ongoing process um, that takes a lot of patience and time and sensibility um, which I think often is also sort of two steps forward, one step back. Um, but
but yeah, so, and then I think these activities that they would do in the groups where they would talk about what happened to them, they would, you know, recognize, well, okay, I'm not the only one whom this happened to, oh, others also have had these similar experiences and they feel the same way maybe about what happened to them, um, would sort of slowly foster that, you know, I think sensibility and that recognition. Um, but yeah, again, it's a very, you know, it's a labor sum and continuous process that's going on there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Philip. Um, I'd just like to invite uh, Fred to speak, if you would like to. In the book. He's um, been... Uh, yeah, that would be lovely. Your... Yeah, yeah, he's, I know he's got a contribution he'd like to make. Um, uh, Fred, could you join us there? I've made you a presenter, so your speaker and uh, camera should work. Actually, he's, been, he's been trying to get a in previous Zoom calls with him, he often had a very shaky connection that he suffered from. So maybe. Oh, okay. Well, let me let me read his let me read his um, written comment, and and hopefully he'll have the opportunity to to come in in person. Um, Philip, congrats for the great work. This book means justice to many survivors. Uh, oftentimes, researchers don't get back to the survivors. You remember I asked you one day before the survivors if you will get back to them with a write-up stroke book, and today you've answered us. <sighs> Okay, and I, I hope it would, be, it would be lovely to hear from you directly if you'd like to if you'd like to join us. Um, Brad. Yeah, let's see maybe. Yeah. Um, some other questions then. Um, the again, lots of people saying congratulations. Um, so, what would be the range of remedies in order to um, in the displacement discourse that might contribute to a more durable solution? So I know you looked at a lot of the question of reparations. Mm. Uh, yeah. About remedies. Um, yeah. Yeah, I could. Um, I mean, you know. Yeah. Sorry, didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, no, that's good. That's fine. Sorry, go ahead. This is a, it's a different question. Okay. Okay. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. In terms of sort of the remedies, you know, beyond sort of what's going on in the groups, yeah, I think reparations do, you know, play a huge role here. So I think, um, and again, I should have emphasized that in the talk here, um, but, you know, whilst maybe being in that group is a sense of justice at this moment in time, it's of course no end in itself, right? Like this is, you know, not, it doesn't have the capacity to, you know, fully remedy all of these harms and address all of their needs. And, um, you know, it's sort of the, it can be maybe seen as sort of a conduit for a wider process or sort of the first step in that process where they can also advocate for, you know, wider justice needs. And reparations is indeed sort of one of the sort of central themes that engaged um, from the discussions. If I would ask them the question of, you know, how do you define justice? What does justice mean to you? What's the priority there? And reparations, um, both in the form of, you know, um, like physical rehabilitation, um, but also material compensations was something that came up by almost, you know, all of the survivors, given that it would be something that would, they hope so, enable them, and I've sort of shared that quote towards the end, to live a life like any other community member where they can, you know, um, if they've had some of these physical injuries, for instance, that haven't been addressed or that haven't been attended to, um, where those physical injuries can be through physical rehabilitation be, you know, addressed and they can work again for themselves, um, you know, can provide for their families, even though, of course, many of them are quite old now. But, you know, that was always something I think that featured very prominently there, that ability to be more independent, um, to take care of themselves. And I think this also then links back to some of these gendered aspects of that and the displacement bit, you know, where, um, again, not being able to be there for your family is, um, or to, to work and, 
and have an income is economically problematic, but it also speaks to what that sense of you know masculinity and failing in your masculine role there. Um, so yeah, absolutely. In terms of the remedies there, um, there was a strong sort of you know um, yeah consensus on that part. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, people were very interested in your 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 methods and methodology, Philip. Um, so there's a further question here asking about. Um, do you think there would be a difference in responses if the questions had come from a, a local Ugandan person um, compared with compared to you? And um, is there work in destigmatizing these conversations? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great question again, and it you know it speaks again to these questions of positionality of me being an outsider doing this kind of work, doing it with local and Ugandan persons. So I must you know also emphasize that whenever I did these workshop discussions, Fred Nomokwe, who is here, and another colleague, Benar Kasuzi, they were always, you know, there. So I didn't just sort of, you know, do them by myself. Um, I think that's part for some of the power dynamics that were going on there. They also would have been able to intervene if, you know, anything sort of um, would have required that. Um, luckily, that was never the case. But I do, I mean, I do think, so on the one hand, of course, being an outsider there, um, you know, has these obvious barriers towards, you know, sort of the, you know, the positionalities and makes it um, in many ways much more difficult to talk about some of that. I also do think, though, and maybe again, I can be criticized for over romanticizing here or painting a too idealized picture. But, you know, taking all of that into account and the difficulties that this outsider position has, at least some of the survivors would have also sort of, you know, voiced their opinion that maybe having somebody from the outside who doesn't share that same sort of cultural understanding and the same, you know, socialized into idea of what it means to be a man and, you know, um, that wouldn't perhaps, or at least that was maybe their, um, you know, their speculation that maybe these um, stereotypes about um, conflating sexual violence with homosexuality would maybe not something that I would bring into that encounter and conversation or would maybe perhaps, you know, evaluate them differently than maybe, you know, somebody from the local community does who would stigmatize them, you know, point fingers. Um, I do think that maybe, you know, sort of embracing that and leaning into that and sort of trying to work around these complexities and these ambiguities that it's neither, you know, a facilitating sort of aspect and neither a complete sort of hindrance. Um, would characterize, I think, the conversations that I would have with that. And then in terms of sort of work to destigmatize these conversations, I mean, that's, you know, that's so incredibly difficult to do that, right, to sort of facilitate that larger process. I do think maybe that, you know, raising awareness about that, you know, showing how widespread it was, clearly showing where the responsibilities for that lie and that it's, you know, not something that can be blamed or placed up on the victims, you know, would or can help locally also to destigmatize these conversations. And, you know, there have been a couple of sort of newspaper articles by um, a journalist who's also part of that call here, James, which, you know, which maybe might have contributed towards raising that awareness and maybe having a book of this sort, although, of course, it wouldn't necessarily be read very widely locally, I think, but can maybe also sort of contribute towards re or destigmatizing that. But, yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly hard task, I think. Yeah, thank you for that great question, though. Yeah, we're we're coming coming to an end here, but I just wanted to follow up with this question because it's it relates directly to what you were just saying, um, and it's mm -hmm. about the dissemination of your findings. Um, so do you plan on doing any follow up work in Uganda, especially with regards to presenting and discussing your findings? Um, and is this something that may cause controversy in Uganda, given the nature of the violence and the connected to the state in terms of responsibility? 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, thank you again for that question. I think it's definitely given the sort of, you know, political context that there is, um, it does, well, it not only wouldn't, but I think discussions about this do sort of spark controversies there. Um, the Refugee Law Project, again, has been, you know, I think documenting this and, you know, there's there's um, a couple of video documentaries, for instance, on YouTube. One is called um, They Slept With Me, which I would encourage everyone to look at, um, which also, you know, did spark a lot of controversy and also I think quite um, frankly to say some um, problems for the organization on a political level you know I mean you can imagine like exposing these government perpetrated crimes of the government which is still you know in power and controlling all of these processes and desperately tries to sort of you know hold on to power as we've seen in the recent election now is not you know necessarily something you want to do it's like poking the you know not sleeping line but like a you know a very aggressive sort of line that's waiting there for you. Um, now, in terms of the sort of dissemination of that, if we wouldn't be living in this weird year that we're living in, in this pandemic, um, I would have hoped to have a, you know, launch in Gulu with the survivors um, about this. Um, I hope that I, you know, will still be able to do that at some later point in time. Um, as I said before, the book is based upon a dissertation conducted at or completed at TJI. So whenever um, I was, um, I had the sort of first version of that in the dissertation, I was able to go back and disseminate copies. Um, the last slide showed a picture of one of the, you know, the, the main interlocutors of my research um, with a copy of that dissertation, um, holding on to that. So, you know, there were some possibilities for me to do that, but I obviously hope to be able to build up on that and, you know, someday be able to bring that hard copy back um, to that context and to the survivors and, you know, and give everyone a copy of the testimonies and the stories they shared so caringly and passionately. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, we have, we do have a few outstanding questions, but um, we're coming to our conclusion. So I think what, if it's okay, what I might do is um, I'll certainly share these with you. Um, mm -hmm. Philip, I can share the written ones with you and um, I'm going to, draw things to a close. There's lots of congratulations coming in here, Philip. Uh, so it, it'll be a nice, uh, it'll be some nice reading for you um, in difficult times. Um, goodness yeah, goodness. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for, for, for any of you who are uh, members of the TJI or, or our graduate uh, PhD researchers at Ulster, we've, um, I should say, we've roped Philip into doing another talk for an internal talk next week where he's going to talk a little bit about how he's gone through um, converting a PhD into a book, which is which is no mean task for any of us who've done it. So, um, uh, fast for an internal session for our Ulster colleagues, um, and also just for uh, those of you interested in this kind of broad area of research, we have a couple of upcoming events um, on the TJI calendar, which may be of interest. Uh, we have on March 16th, we're we're launching um, actually my book, um, Women's Rights and Armed Conflict Under International Law, and on April 6th, we'll have Karen Engel talking about her book, uh, The Grip of Sexual Violence: uh, Feminist Intervention in International Law. So, those are all on the, the TJI website through our social media. A newsletter etc etc um, and we have recorded this session so for anyone who's registered we will follow up directly with um, the link to the recording um, it'll also be on our podcast etc uh, etc et so I hope that you'll uh, use that to, to spread the word um, Brandon I feel I should give you an opportunity just to say something before we before we part company um no, there's nothing else I need to add, but just congratulations again, Philip. I think everything has been 
has been said and it's a pity we couldn't get fred or someone else on the line there that would have been great but uh i'm sure there'll be some more opportunities for that in the future but thanks for the well done yeah absolutely and um, we will we will all raise a a virtual glass to you philip i i live in hope that we will be able to do this all in person someday um that would be wonderful we look forward to inviting you back at that point philip yeah no that would be absolutely wonderful i would love that absolutely. and thank you consider, so much. consider yourself invited so. thanks so much Catherine. thanks so much for that and also thank you so much to um for you to for hosting this and brandon for engaging with this um, and for everyone who joined and participated and asked some really great questions if i haven't had a chance to answer them or if i haven't answered them you know sufficiently enough then please feel free to just send me an email and we can you know i can shoot you back an email or we can sort of talk bilaterally or so um but yeah it's i mean at some point the chat start uh, stopped working i don't know if that's maybe because there were so many questions um or that's just my old computer here um but you know that's um absolutely you know if there's anything that that sort of yeah wasn't addressed do reach out and thanks okay thank you so, okay so we'll conclude just with a final thanks to everyone for for joining us and a particular thanks and uh congratulations to to philip uh say stay safe and well everybody and uh look forward to seeing you all in person in, in due course okay hopefully soon yeah <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much okay. take Bye -bye. care everyone.